0: Last fall, a number of your leaders considered and thought and prayed and decided on an emphasis upon stewardship done in a way we don't typically do that would be very visible to you in this particular period of time from mid-April right after Easter until May 13th. It's a focused emphasis on a very important subject. And when we were beginning to talk about this and receive some very good guidance from folks on how to emphasize it the best way, we came to begin calling it a spiritual journey. It's typical to call it a campaign. And some of you will think it's a campaign whether I call it a journey or not. It actually took me a while to adapt my thoughts to the word journey to realize that what it involves is submitting myself and hopefully you to the teaching and instruction and challenge of the Word of God. And then to pray about an important matter of Christian discipleship what we do with our money and resources. And particularly to focus it in terms of the plans and patterns we see for this church and its ministry in future days. We are putting it before you as a journey trying to realize God's plan, trying to understand what that is and see it implemented. I hope you'll think about that as I read today from an Old Testament text, two different chapters. It's a bit of a lengthy piece, and I'm going to skip portions to enough to give you the, the narrative sense of what is happening in First Chronicles 28 and 29, a great occasion in the life of Israel when under David and Solomon they came to build a temple for the honor of the Lord. Follow with me and it wouldn't be a bad idea if you would want to go back later today and reread these two chapters to get all the detail that I won't read. But here's David with people assembled before him, all the many subordinate officers of Israel's military and politics and affairs of state and the temple leadership and so on. And he stands to speak. Verse 2 of 1st Chronicles 28. King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building. But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever, and he chose Judah. As a leader in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father, now, if you'll jump with me to verse eleven i'm going to be a skipping stone here, picking up the sense of the of the larger portion. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and its houses, treasuries, upper rooms, inner chambers, and the room for the mercy seat and the plan for all he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, treasuries of God, treasuries for the dedicated gifts, for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, and all the work of the service in the house of the Lord. Jump down again to verse 19 as the chronicler, the one writing, interjects, and he's the one speaking here. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house for the Lord is finished. Now jump into chapter 29, please. And David once again speaks, even knowing that Solomon is the one doing this, he's going to be a provider. Verse 2 again. David says, I have provided for the house of my God as far as I was able. And then he enumerates gold and silver and wood and iron, things brought out of the treasury of Israel. Verse 3, moreover, in addition to all I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. And he enumerates the the uh, measurements of gold and silver and then he gives this challenge at the end of verse 5 who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the lord and the leaders of the fathers houses made their free will offerings as did also leaders of the tribes commanders of thousands and hundreds and officers over the king's work they gave for the service of the house of god again enumerating riches And coming to verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord, and David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now, we've heard the story, but we still need the consecration prayer that is here. So let me continue with this concluding prayer. As David, we read, blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly and said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our fathers, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. Now we thank you, our God. We praise you, your glorious name. But then this humbling of himself. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. We are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. O oh Lord God, all this abundance we have provided for building you a house for your holy name it comes from your hand, and it's all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of the heart, I have freely offered these things, and now I have seen your people present here offering freely and joyously to you. O oh Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel and our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct our hearts toward you. This is God's word. Today, as we begin several weeks of considering this subject of biblical stewardship, I have a word in my mind. We're just going to have a really quick word game here in which I want you to see if you guess and you get to participate. I want you to say it out loud, okay? You don't often do that in the sermon. I have a word in mind. Relating to this whole subject. And the word begins with M and ends with Y. Tell me out loud, what is the word? I'm not sure if I heard the right word from anybody or not. But I heard the wrong word from most of you. It's not money. The word is ministry. And I'm not tricking you. I'm 100% sincere that as we look over these next weeks at the subject of stewardship, the concern is ministry. Now, of course, it's true that ministry requires money, but never as an end unto itself, only as an instrument to see the work of God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ being declared. Ministry is what we're concerned about. We're calling you in these weeks leading up to mid-May to a prayerful, open-minded way of thinking about what stewardship to the Lord means for you personally and for us as an entire church to the end that we might think about seeing God work in even greater ways in this ministry the ministry of this church. Now, I will get to my text. It took a while to read that text this morning, and I will speak about it, but I have a bit more extended introduction before I get to it in case you think I'm not going to arrive there. I want to just quickly, and it will be very quick, review a 20-year capsule history of planning for ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church. I know 18 of those 20 years quite well and certainly knew the couple of years before I arrived here, so I think I'm qualified to speak about planning for ministry at this church. When I arrived here in 1994, the congregation was on a bit of a high, I think, because of an accomplishment that had just happened not too long before that. They had, you folks had lengthened the old sanctuary and enlarged seating capacity there. You'd also built what we call the activity room or gym at the opposite end of the building and and offices and some other rooms that gave us new possibilities and were great to have. Those things with the carpet was still pretty new on those rooms when I came here, since been replaced. I knew that this was a church that was pursuing God's plan, doing it with faith, doing it with sacrifice. And of course, building isn't the only measurement of that, but they were saying, we need more space because we're growing. Now, 20 years ago, when I came, we were also thinking about moving beyond in more daughter churches. We had planted one in Ephrata, and I was barely here. My desk chair was barely warm when all of a sudden a wonderful opportunity came to plant a new congregation on the opposite side of Lancaster that we call Wheatland Church today, the largest seed church, daughter church that we have planted to date with more than 100 people leaving our congregation. I remember that the pews were kind of empty the Sundays after those, not empty, but emptier, if there's such a word, uh, the Sundays after those folks departed. And I thought, boy, if we sapped our strength too much here, we gave away young leaders and, and really vital folks that, that would have helped us a great deal. Well, God grew a church that exists to his glory there at Wheatland today that has a fine ministry You know, too, that since then we've started other daughters at Harvest Church, at Living Hope in Lidditz, which has had to be closed, but also New City in Lancaster. And we're giving glory to God today for the way he has done this work in planting new churches, not just so that we would have more seats in our facility on Oregon Pike. That isn't the reason for daughter churches. The reason is obeying the Great Commission and going and establishing units of worship and discipleship and outreach that will reach people that we will never reach. I know for a fact, and I could call the pastors of those daughter churches and probably get some statistics, but I can make a pretty good estimate that with about 1,150 or more of you on a normal Sunday here at Westminster worshiping, adding in the daughter church worshipers, we've topped 2,000 people worshiping every Sunday to the glory of God. And we wouldn't have reached all those people. The Lord is doing good things through that ministry. And we continue to want to obey that daughter church mentality. Well, we came then into a period about 1995 to 97 where we were asking some hard questions because that enlarged building was full. We sent people away and it was full. And it kept filling up. And we were saying, what do we do? What? We need a platform from which we can minister to which new people can come and, and find a parking place and get in the building and sit down and worship with us. And we had some very hard restraints on us. If you know anything about green space regulations and so on, you've, you've got to have so much green land that doesn't have a building or a parking lot on it. We were built right up to the limit on our eight acres. Couldn't go further. What do we do? One thing we began to do was, was talk about purpose, and out of that talk came something that's on your bulletin every single Sunday, and I know for most of you, it's just wallpaper now. You don't even look at it. I hope visitors look at it. Right under the picture, the drawing of the church on the first page is that three-point purpose statement. We solidified that. We worked on it carefully. We prioritized it. We labored over every word and said, what are we existing for? What are we here for? To worship to make disciples and to reach out to the world. And that, folks, remains our purpose. We're not proposing a new purpose statement today. That is a durable plan that we stand by. But we were saying, how do we do it? You know, we even considered. We looked at some tracts of land and said, do we go and start all over? That was very intimidating to think about. What do we do? We began to pray. We did a lot of talking. Then a a neat thing not just neat, wonderful thing, happened. I won't call it a miracle, but it was a providence of God of the most extraordinary nature. When the farmer, whose land is adjacent to us up in this direction, this was a working farm then, came to one of our men whom he knew and said, you know what, I see you have a growing church there. Our land abuts yours. Would you folks like to buy some land I didn't do that, folks. Our elders didn't do that. God did that. And to his praise, we were able to buy the 10 acres of land that we needed to go forward and say, all right, now we can have that tool for ministry that we can try to design that will glorify God by its beauty, but most of all, be a practical base for a growing ministry for many years to come. And you know the efforts, if you were here, that we put into planning and working and Man, it was exhaustive, but it was glorious as God allowed us to achieve what you're sitting in today, not as some kind of a monument, a tool, a tool for ministry. Well, let me summarize this way, and you know, statistical things alone don't do it, but just give you a few things that, because a lot of times when you, you don't feel like you're making progress until you look back and, and see how far you've come, 20 years, 20 years, a couple statistics. In 20 years' time, we have welcomed 1,600 new members to this church. 1,600. Now, they're not all still here. That's not net increase. The net increase is about 70%. But we have brought to this church many, many new people, many of whom are leaders today. We now have four existing daughter churches that are healthy and alive and moving forward and possibly see more in the future. If you want a statistical thing, it's always a little dangerous to talk just about budget things because missions and outreach isn't measured by budgets. But let me just give you that anyway. In just prior to that 20 years, 19, end of 1991, 20 years and a few months ago, Our giving as a church to missions was one hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars. Now, some people in churches today would say, "Wow, one hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars." Last year, twenty eleven, our giving to missions was seven hundred and seventy thousand dollars, quadrupled. Now, what am I saying? Am I? I want to be very careful here because we're not banging our drum, and we're not. You know, you pat yourself on the back too hard, you fall over. To God be the glory is what I'm saying. What marvelous things those who've been here for 20 years have lived through and seen God do in our midst. It's been thrilling. It's been quite a ride. Well, now we're looking ahead and saying, what comes next? And, you know, you can't say, well, here's what we're going to be doing in 2030 or 2050. Yeah, you need to be very wary of that kind of planning. It's awfully hard to do. But you can look a couple of years ahead and say, Based on where we are now, based on what's happening, how we see God work, what his word says, how he's called us, what's next? And many of your leaders have felt there's a dramatic opportunity before us to finish the work of this ministry tool that has been provided, to get out of our way the mortgage that we bear, that we're paying fine, no problem. I'm making our payments. We're healthy there. But what if we could get that out of the way? in three years instead of 10 or more. Is it a wild dream? Consultants tell us it should be possible. But we know it will be possible only if God's people take hold of that vision and plan and say, we need to do this. I think of, of NASA space launches and the stages of the rocketry. And we're not thinking, by the way, of North Korea's space launch. That doesn't seem to be a good example. But When we successfully launch a space rocket, you know we want to get a satellite in orbit or a man to the moon or something, you know how the big booster rocket has to go up and its whole purpose is just get above the gravitational field and then get out of the way. Fall away so the payload can go where it was intended to go. I think of our mortgage just like that. We had to have it to get ourselves above the gravitational field. Now, you can argue with that if you want to, but we believe we needed to have it. But we want to get rid of it and go on and accomplish what the Lord might see us accomplish in the ministry that this ministry tool and our consecrated lives allow us to accomplish. Now, I'm going to the text finally, and I will keep my eye on the clock. I turn to this text and ask this question primarily. What can we learn from David's pursuit of God's plans in 970 B.C.? This is a 3,000-year-old event several things. One, we see here David with plans that were developed and then humbly submitted before the Lord. Now this text makes it very clear that it was in David's mind and heart that the idea of the temple was conceived. He was king, he had come to a kind of pinnacle of his leadership, basically had peace at his borders, the treasuries were filled, there was, you know, political stability and so on, and he had it on his heart to build a worship center, a permanent worship center for the Lord. They had the tabernacle, they had the ark, but he wanted a permanent worship center. It was on David's heart. Now, was it God's plan? There were times when David ran ahead of God, when he did things God didn't order him to do, and he suffered for it. But this time, it appears, he submitted the plan to the Lord and said, Lord, do you want me to do it? I'm ready to do it. I I know it'll be hard, but I'm ready to. And he got his answer. I don't know how, but he got a clear answer from the Lord. What was the answer? You're not going to do it. But your son is. I've chosen your son, Solomon. Now, David could have reacted with a funk, you know. He could have, oh, my biggest dream ruined. But we don't have a word of that. Instead, what we have is a response of David saying, all right, my son's young, he's inexperienced. I'm going to do everything I can to help him and equip him so he can do what God wants done. And by the way, you know, this wasn't all out of David's head because when you look at the plan for the temple that emerged, it was almost a copy right down to details of the basic plan and architecture of the tabernacle in the wilderness. So David got a lot of this plan out of the word of God. He was a student of the Word, and that was where he went for plans if God had plans there. What an illustration of the idea of man proposing plans, but then God disposing of them, singling out what he wants to see happen, putting his purposes forward. Well, there's another lesson here besides plans being developed and humbly submitted. The role of united leadership is here in verses 20 to uh, chapter 29, verses 2 and following. As he comes before the the gathered leaders and I guess wider people as well in some public way and says, look, here's what the king's treasury is going to give to this project and listed a lot of things. Now, that was from tax money. That wasn't David's money. But then he says, I'm going to add to this from my own treasury... And he lists the gold and silver. And those who study these things say the amounts listed there, if you could somehow put it together in today's equivalents, are in the millions of dollars. Now, David was a wealthy man from everything, all his conquests and everything. But it was no small gift even for a wealthy man. Millions of dollars that David put on the line and said, I will give personally. And then he asked the challenging question in verse 5 of chapter 29. Who else will willingly offer and consecrate themselves to the Lord. What happened? You read it. A list of these godly men, captains, generals, priests, politicians, scribes coming forward. I will give. I will give. I will give. And the leaders of God's people poured out generously things unto the Lord because they were God-consecrated leaders. We have a vernacular term today for leaders like these. They were men who had skin in the game. They put things that counted that belonged to them on the line. Costly action, united and decisive in a righteous cause. Let me tell you, I believe people are waiting to follow leaders who will sacrifice themselves in a costly way in a righteous cause. We're looking for that guy to run for president, aren't we? Who can do those kinds of things. Morally, spiritually, in terms of the laws and ideals of our land, a leader who puts himself on the line, God's people will fall in behind. And so we see the united will. Verse 29.9 says, Willingly and with a whole heart, the people offered themselves. Folks, I'm going to tell you in a coming week that this was not fundraising. fact there's not much about fundraising in the bible there's a lot about stewardship it's not just nomenclature stewardship is when your heart and your mind and your will belong to a greater purpose to the goals of your god and you give yourself first and then everything you've got simply follows that's not fundraising that's stewardship Now, what may this tell us quickly about pursuing God's plan at Westminster in 2012 and following? It's going to tell us this. First of all, your leaders and all of you participating and speaking to us need to keep listening to the Lord and submitting whatever subordinate plans we have for the future to him. They have to be formed in prayer. They can't be to fulfill anybody's ego. They have to be ready at any point to say, Lord, we, it looks like you want us to do this. This seems like it would be a God-honoring thing. Is this what you want, Lord? Because if you don't, block the way up to us and don't let us do it. I feel like that's what happened in 1996 or 7 when the farmer came to us. We were praying, Lord, do you want us on this land? Do you want us to, to do better and further work here? You've got to open something up because the way's closed. Bam! Bam! The Lord opened the way. And sometimes we have to think, well, I'm going forward. This is what we think. This is what the session thinks. Lord, are you going to close the way? Because close it if you don't want it. That's how we're praying. God's plans are realized by people who will do that. Secondly, leadership has to set the pace. There's going to be some events happening in the next couple of weeks that folks are invited to. And if if you weren't invited, I hope you're not going to feel bad about that. The people who were invited were the primary leaders of the congregation, the officers, the teachers, the committee heads, the committee participants, and folks that kind of keep the wheels turning in the church. We're bringing those folks together and saying, okay, we've distributed some information. We've, We've put it in video. Here's what we're thinking. What do you think? Will you pray with us? Will you join with us? And we're going to hopefully hear from those leaders as to whether they will stand and say, this is something we think God wants to see happen. Then we're going to come to the rest of you with a challenge in early May. Now, you see, I think that there's no limit on what God can do when he gets people in the situation that these people in Israel were in. God's plan was in place. It was a God-honoring plan, and the Lord himself endorsed it. Godly leaders were united behind it and ready to sacrifice. And God's people said, Let's go. These were people who did not for a moment believe the foolish heresy that often enters Christianity that says, You know, there's a wall of separation between your money and your resources and what you do with them and your God and your spiritual faith. I call that a heresy. It is a heresy. Jesus certainly said it. Why did Jesus devote more teaching by volume and and sharp conclusions to the subject of how to use money and resources than he did on the subjects of heaven and hell and faith combined? Go check it out. All through Luke, we've had Jesus talking about people proving you know, you tell me you have faith, show it in your works. Show it with what you do, with the resources you have. That's a constant theme in the Scripture. You cannot separate your stewardship from your declarations of faith. I read a comment on 1 Chronicles 29, and I'm coming to the conclusion here. I want you to listen to this, this comment. very. I'm going to read it twice because it's, it's, uh, I think it's great. Here's how this one man summarized what was going on in 1 Chronicles 29. He said, people appear to be closest to God himself when they adopt the servant condition of self-giving because in that condition, they are most capable of great rejoicing in the Lord. Do you hear that? People are closest to God himself when they adopt the servant condition of self-giving because they are most capable of great rejoicing. This thing just bubbles over with rejoicing and humility when David brings his prayer to God at the end. I'm, I'm not going to exegete this prayer in detail. But you saw the beginning of it, how David praised God as the source of everything through verse 13. In fact, Pastor De Bruin, I'm not sure if he did this consciously or not, but he used the words of of this prayer in his invocation this morning. God, you own everything. You are the source. You are the great and mighty God. But then he turned towards himself and towards his people. Look at what he said in verse 14. Who am I, And what is my people that we should be able to thus offer so willingly? He was saying, I can't believe that you, the great God that you are, would use weak, disobedient, dirty-handed people like us to do your will. But you do. And he marveled over it here, you see. And he marveled over the joy and the privilege of God's people being able to see God's purpose be accomplished at their hands. And then in verses 17 and 18, he said, King David said, I know, Lord, that you test the heart by these things. You put us to the test. I know that you have seen your people offering themselves freely and joyously. Now listen to what he said next. Um, this is really important. He said, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people to direct their hearts toward you. Let me paraphrase. I feel like David was saying." Lord, you've brought us as a whole people united in sacrifice to breathe the air of heaven here, to understand that, that gracious giving that, that forms your own very nature. And if David could look forward, he might have said that, that even sent your son to the cross. Lord, you've brought us closest to your own character in allowing us the privilege of pouring ourselves out in a God-ordered cause. It's as if the king was praying and said, Lord, would you please freeze this moment for us? Keep us in the spirit of this moment that we would never forget what you were able to accomplish through obedient people, delighting and seeking after your purposes and your plans in our times. Folks, as we go forward with this in the next few weeks, my prayer as we consider it is not How can I reach into your home by some kind of pulpit eloquence, which I don't have, and wring you dry? I'm not interested. I'm not interested. You know, people have said, oh, you mean we're going to have to listen to him rake us over the coals about giving for five weeks? You know, if that's your attitude, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying that God would open up your heart because he's already changed me as he's taught me some important things in these last weeks preparing for this. I'm praying that all of us would have the opportunity in our lives, not just once, but perhaps many, many times, to taste the delightful experience of united, sacrificial discipleship that Israel had in that day. And once tasting it, we would crave it on our tongues and our mouths as the taste of worshiping a God of all riches and grace who poured himself out for us, how dare we not consider being poured out for him? Our Father, I just ask that you would go to work on us. I'm sure without having a name in mind that there's some people sitting here saying, he's not going to get to me. My mind is made up. I know what I'm doing. Lord, I just pray that your people would be yielded people, praying people, humble and united people, and that we might have a cause to taste the rejoicing that Israel had, not just in this particular project before us, but in yielded lives, generous, self-offered, willing lives, poured out for Jesus' sake. Will you do this, Lord? We will seek to remember to praise you for the result. Amen.